Thank you, Andrew, for that reading. Uh, I was telling Andrew kind of drew the short straw on the reading list <laughs> that he had to you know, read about Noah's nakedness. But we're glad that you're with us here this morning you know, as we are continuing, like Deirdre said, our series here on the Pentateuch. Um, and it, it really is a fun series to go through, to really walk through Genesis through Deuteronomy. And again, you know, George has talked about this every time I think he mentions what the Pentateuch is, but just to remind everybody, you know, that's the first five books of the Bible. And those first five books of the Bible are everything, right? I mean, that, all of Scripture always points back to, Jesus talks about, everything goes back to those first five books of the Bible, which is called the Law or the Pentateuch, which is just these five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so it, it is one story, one big book, that's broken up into these five smaller books. And small, I mean, it's relative. Genesis, obviously, is still really a long book. But as we look at those, it's helpful for us to remember how this is part of that broader plan, broader narrative of God's deliverance of his people from slavery and bringing them into the land, and really how that ultimately leads to Christ. And this first section of Genesis, 1 through 11, which is where we are right now, is really this prologue or introduction to the whole book, to the rest of the Pentateuch. These first 11 chapters really contain these epic grand narratives and stories that really help to explain for the reader and for us really what has gone wrong in the world and really why things are so difficult right now. It's not Genesis is not a scientific explanation of the origins of the world. Right? That's not why it was written, to explain how things came about. But rather, these narratives really are there to explain how things went wrong. Like, like why is our life filled with such hurt and pain? Why is there so much conflict? You know, we looked at the, the garden narrative early. You know, why are relationships between men and women so hard? Why is work so unfulfilling? Because of sin. Why is there so much violence and murder in the world? Explained by Cain and Abel. And what is the only possible hope right, for ever putting any of these things right? What will ever make these hurts and these pains and this disappointment right? And as we've seen throughout these narratives, Right, that there's been that hope from Genesis 3 onwards now of a child. That one day a child will come who will undo all of that work in the garden. That one day a true child will come who will fix everything and bring life. That's the hope. Right, that's been their hope right from the beginning. And George has outlined that already. Right from Eve on, everyone has been waiting and hoping. Eve thought it was going to be Cain. And then obviously the pain and disappointment of Cain. Then instead of crushing the head of the serpent, he crushes his own brother. And now Lamech, right, putting all of his hope now in Noah, right, saying, at last, when Noah is born, the one who will relieve us from our toil, which we read last week. And that story of Noah, right, I mean, if there's a Bible story that everybody in culture kind of knows, right, this is it in a lot of ways. It's a pretty familiar cultural narrative. And, and it was a familiar story. This worldwide flood account I mean, predates the writing of the Bible. The Mesopotamians have this story. I mean, this is a well-known story of the worldwide flood and how one man saved humanity through it. I mean, this is, 
It's, it's known for a reason. And it's really well known in our culture, in our understandings as well. And when you look at it through that lens of hoping for this promised child, the one who is going to save and relieve, who will undo all that sin and death and violence, there's a lot of hope that Noah's going to be the one. At last, he comes. Because really within that story of the flood account, and we're not going to be able to work through all of it this morning, obviously, we're going to look at the ending of that story, but it's an incredible story that reveals a lot about how God views humanity, how God views this world, and what God is at work actively doing in it. For a lot of us, we think of that narrative, and maybe the culture looks at that narrative as a narrative of anger, right? Like God is angry with his creation, he's angry at the world, and so the wrath of God comes down and he punishes everybody, but mercifully spares one kind of person. But when you read that text, right, in Genesis 6 and 7, it really is this narrative of deep sadness, right? God grieves and is sorry that he made what he made. It's not, a, it's not an angry God who is actively looking to punish or to destroy, but it's a God whose heart breaks at the violence and the hurt and the pain of the world. That's God's position as he looks at the brokenness of the world. He's not angry, but he's saddened. And then God begins this narrative of deliverance that's going to be repeated throughout the Pentateuch and throughout all of Scripture. But this hope, he, does, he provides a way to save what he has created. He's going to save all of creation through one man, through one family, he's going to save the world. That's going to become repeated very quickly in Genesis when we get to Genesis 12 and 13 with Abraham. One family, one man, one child. He picks one man, one family to save the world. They are going to pass through the waters. That's going to be another pretty relevant experience to the Israelites of salvation coming through the waters. They're going to run and flee into the ark to find safety, to find the presence of God, which is, again, going to be a repeated narrative throughout all of Scripture and through the Pentateuch with that ark of the Lord with the people, God's presence with them and his deliverance. And it ends then with that altar and a covenant and blood being shed. The story of the ark and of Noah is, like I said, is a tremendous, tremendous narrative. But what's so challenging about this story is actually the reading that Andrew gave today, because that's the takeaway that the author wants you to focus on, is the ending. There's this narrative structure within Genesis of narrative followed by poem, narrative followed by poem. We had the creation account, in the garden account, followed by the poem, and that poem was that cursing and blessing of Adam and Eve and the serpent, and oh, that's the takeaway. You're waiting for that promised child this one who is to come. And here at the end of the Noah account, it ends with this poem, with this utterance by Noah. It's the first time he speaks out loud in the text, at least. And it's cursing his grandson and blessing his sons. It's an odd ending to the story, and it's an ending where we don't, that part from a cultural point, right, we're not very familiar with. (laughs) We like to really end 
excuse me, we like to end the Noah narrative with them leaving the boat and the rainbow and God promising never to do that again. And I go, okay, great. And then let's stop. But the narrative purposely continues, right? And it seems that the ending of the narrative is actually more important to the story than the narrative itself or the plot to that point. Because what happens, right, if you look at this again and we look at that ending to the story, it really is an Eden 2.0, right? We have all of humanity is restarting. You have a garden narrative again with now Noah working the ground just like Adam and Eve were called to do. He works the ground. He makes himself a vineyard. And this is all good things. And then he gets drunk and passes out in his tent naked. And his son comes in and sees his nakedness. And it's, right, the text is clearly ambiguous on purpose. For what purpose? Who knows? But you have Noah's failures in his drunkenness and in his nakedness. And then you have Ham's failures in his reveling in his father's nakedness and coming out of the tent, whatever happened in the tent, he comes out and wants to bring his brothers in on it, you know, and instead of joining Ham in reveling and enjoying his father's shame, they cover him. They walk backwards with that cloak over their shoulders and they cover him rather than look at him. And then an angry, outraged Noah wakes up, right, and somehow knows what's happened that Ham has seen things and done things, and he starts cursing, right? He curses his grandson, not his son, which is a little, again, whoa, what's going on? You know, he, he sees this as this is going to be a generational problem for you, you know, and then he blesses his two sons. So you have this garden narrative, so almost a restart of Genesis with this one family again, but the ending is almost exactly the same as the ending to the first story, right? Where you have them working the soil, but trying to escape that toil and work and seeking other things. And in the end, both endings with that naked and ashamed. Curses and blessings. Noah has failed at the end of his epic story, right? He was supposed to be the hero the savior of the world, the chosen child, the one who would restart all of humanity and bring life and bring relief. And instead, he sought his own relief from his work and his toil through alcohol, gets drunk and naked, makes himself really ashamed. And his son indulges in that, sins in that, carries that forward, and everything unravels right away in the story. So why this emphasis, or why would the author want us to see Noah like this? Why not end that narrative much more hopefully and positively with that covenant being given and God promising never to do this again? But why this intentionality for us to see Noah failing in that way and then cursing his future generations of grandkids and blessing the others. Well, and as we've been working through the text, and George has done a great job of this, of really kind of confronting us, and because the author, these stories in Genesis, I mean, they really do confront you 
in really pretty harsh ways and make you have to really look at how life is and how things are currently. We have a tendency, and this is maybe just an American tendency or if it's a religious tendency, and we really like to gloss over those types of parts of narratives or stories. We like to see the big overarching themes, the big epic sweeps, the big heroes. These are the good ones. These are the bad ones. This is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do. Right? I mean, many of us probably went through Sunday school as kids and learned that we were to be like Noah, right? And you should strive to work hard like Noah, listen to God's voice and do what he says, no matter what the crowd says. But, right, those n- lessons never ended with him drunk and naked right? because that's a much harder narrative for us to fit in our head, or at least of our hopes, of what we hope for. Right, our expectations or our hope as a reader and just in life is that Noah would do everything right and then would receive the blessings of God for doing everything right. I thought that was it. I thought that's where this was going. But rather, the author of Genesis rightly isn't trying to show us these heroes because the hero and the story hasn't come yet. Right, that future promised child has yet to come but is rather showing us, though, forcing us to really look at the state of the world and the state of our lives and how similar it is and what these issues really are that we have. Because our own life and our own experiences for the ancient Israelites and for us is really the same. Our lives are filled with guilt and shame, with being exposed, people seeing it, especially our children, or children's seeing their father in a compromising position, seeing their parents being sinned against by their parents, sinning against their parents, and the effects of that being felt for generations. I mean, that, that is our life. That is all of our lives. Right? No, there is no family in this world who has not experienced that. Guilt and shame because of the sins of a parent or the sins of a child. It's the experience we have. And the author of Genesis wants to drive us to that and say, well, this, is, this has been going on since from the beginning. This experience that you're having in your family, in your life, in your heart, has always been there. And God has always been at work to reconcile that, to work on that guilt and that shame. These stories then explain the various degrees of pain and disappointment that we all experience. And it really does come from this really misplaced hope. You see it in the story, and you see it in all of our lives as well. This this hope in the heroic is what George has referenced. That comes from Leon Cass. Again, there's a couple of books. If you do really like kind of academic studies and you kind of want to know, like, because we get emails, especially in this series, we've been getting emails saying, like, Whoa, where'd you get that take? I've never heard that before. You know, John Salehammer, his work on the Pentateuch has been, I mean, just transformative for us in a lot of ways. And also Leon Cass's work on Genesis is also a really a great book as well. Really, and his, his argument in, is that Genesis is not just a broad, big textbook, but rather would have been used by the Israelites to pass wisdom, to try to incorporate that fear of God that we're going to see in Proverbs, but also to help you in your everyday life and as, you know, to see your own failure in the text, 
So not just this academic overview of, oh, yep, Jesus is coming, but rather like it is apl- applicable to our lives and to our daily life. And his argument has been, what that narrative you kind of see within all these stories is there's a longing for the heroic, right? Eve longed to be the hero of the story, to be like God. She was promised she could be like God. That sounds great. <laughs> I, I would love to be like God and reaches out for that heroic ending to be the hero. And instead it brings that, that shame, right? You see that with Lamech too, that kind of heroic boasting of his vigor and his violence and all of those things about him. And you, you see it with Noah to a certain extent too. I mean, the text is ambiguous on things, but it does seem like he's a little different when he comes off the boat. You know, he comes out of the boat, he kind of leaves his wife, he goes first. You know, he builds an altar without being asked. He starts killing animals without being told to. You know, he, he, he kind of, I don't know if it's, maybe he is kind of taking this a little, I'm the savior of the world complex a little too seriously, but he clearly reaches out for his own comfort, his own glory, his own things, and finds alcohol and becomes drunk in it. But there is this aspect in which we all have that similar longing We all want to be a hero. We all want to be the hero of our own narratives and our own stories. We want to be the parent who will right the ship in my family, right? I'm going to break the chains of things that have been going on. I'm not going to be like my parent. I'm not going to be like my grandparent. I'll be the one who does this. Or I'm going to be the good child, unlike my other. I'm going to be the one, right? I'll be the one who can do this. I want to be the one who does this. We all have that deep longing for the heroic. And in that longing, we are always going to put our hope in something to be that hero. If it's ourselves to be our own heroes, if it's, right, what child has not put their hope in their parents, right, to be their hero? I mean, that is just natural. You know, my dad is my hero. My mom is my hero. You know, you, you just want to put your hope in someone. You want to find a hero and say, yeah, that's who I want to be. And then as a parent, how, right, what, child, what parent has not put their hope in their kids? Of like, they're so great. I've, I've done something great in my life. This kid is going to really be a blessing to the world. Finally, I mean, Lamech, at last, this is it. What a great kid. I did this. Right? I have done something worthwhile because I produced this child and they're doing so great at whatever it is. They graduated college or they have the right job or they're going to church every Sunday or they're, you know, we, we, we create whatever that narrative is of that heroic and say, yes, they did it. And we put our hopes in those things. We put our hopes in our family that, you know, this family is going to be a family that follows God. This family is going to be a family that, you know, we, we've got it right. We're going to be able to do it. The, the world's all falling apart, but our family, we're going to, I'm going to be able to hold this together, and we're going to be that beacon on a hill, that one family that's hospitable and really demonstrates the gospel. You, it's, it's just so, I mean, this is it's impossible not to misplace our hopes, which is really what the narratives are showing us. Like, everybody's doing that. (laughs) No one has their hopes right throughout the narratives of the Bible. No one, none of the heroes keep their hope, have their hope in the right place. And then we all experience that fruit from our misplaced hopes. We all experience that fruit 
of the longing for the heroic, that legalism, the expectations that get put on kids, that it's so unfair, right? The expectations that get put on parents, that's unfair. The expecting everyone to follow and fit within certain rules, certain uh, customs, certain jobs, certain whatever it is, but it, and if you break those rules, if you walk outside of that, right, the pain that comes from that and the violent responses at times that come from that, the anger that comes out of this, desiring to be the heroic. I mean, this is not going to be the last narrative of one of the heroes, the good guys, bursting out in anger uh, in the text, right? Moses is going to do a, have a very similar moment in his life to Noah's as well, right? Because I mean, this, it, when, in, when I get confronted, if I have that heroic vision, I want to be that hero, I want to be that leader, I want to be that father, and then it gets compromised, right? I lash out, right? Anger comes. Hiding weakness keeping things hidden, right? We're all good Minnesotans, probably very good at this, right? Everything is fine. Things are good. We can make our lives look good if we need to, to make sure nobody sees the weakness, the pain, the shame and guilt that we have. Because ultimately, we all experience, it is that universal experience that we're seeing through here through Genesis of guilt and shame from the garden to Noah, and we're going to see it continuing. And all the way through the Pentateuch and God's plan of covering and dealing with our guilt and our shame. But this idea that we all feel guilt and shame when we get exposed for not being the hero, for not being who we want to be. Right? I want to be this father, but I am this father. And we feel shame. I want to be this type of child, but I ended up being this type of child. Guilt, and, and we feel that weight of the guilt and the shame. So the narratives, and this one in particular, right, really just drives us and would be driving the reader, this introductory part of Genesis, is really driving us as readers to examine what we're putting our hope in and really driving us to long for or at least start to think about what could take away that shame. I have that same experience. What would it take for that shame to be lifted? Because all of us find ourselves in this type of story, which again is not going to be the first of father-son narratives throughout scripture, but it's the beginning of this narrative, right? Some of us are Noah, right? If we do have our stories, if you think back over your story, right, we have been Noah, the seeming hero who our kids looked up to, who failed, miserably, who left, who exposed ourselves to our children in a way that did trauma, real trauma and damage to our, not only to our children, but to our grandchildren and to their, their children. That's the result. And that's the experience. Many of us have, have been Noah and have had that story and feel tremendous amounts of guilt and shame over our failures and the effect that it's going to have, has had, will have on future generations. Some of us are hams, not in the, the pig sense, but, but in the sense of the, the son here, right? I mean, who have really sinned against our parents. We walked away from the Lord. We 
reveled in sin and really hurt our family, not just lightly, but significantly, right? And that guilt and shame that we feel, right, because of what we've did, done to our parents, to our families, right? And we think of everything that was given to us and we threw it off and pursued our own, our own selfishness and sin and the effects of it have been felt by everybody. Some of us are Canaan's, right? It's easy to feel really bad for Canaan in the narrative, right? He's the grandson, and he's the one who gets cursed, not Ham. But some of us are Canaan's. Like, what did we do to deserve this? It feels unfair. It's a real modern reading of it. You know, it feels unfair. But we don't feel like it's unfair for generations to experience benefits that they didn't deserve, Right? Why would it be unfair for generations to feel the negative effects too? Right? Because that, that is our result. That is the way in which our broken world and sin infects and works on us all. I mean, there are many of us right, who are dealing with the sins of their fathers, of their mothers, of past generations, who didn't do anything, right? but have these struggles, have these broken relationships, and have to walk in these ways. And some of us frankly, are the Jepeth and the Shem, which is not a fun person to be either. The good kids, right? The ones who have been really working hard, trying hard to cover up the sins of their family forever, keeping this together, right? Covering up what mom and dad do, covering up what brother and sister do, trying to just keep everybody covered, <laughs> keep everybody righteous, Try and and many of us have lived lives of that exhaustion. Like just it's exhausting to try to cover up the sins of your parents, to try to cover up the sins of others within your family. Who will ever take over that job? Who could could cover our shame and give us that freedom and relief that we all long for? which is what the author is really trying to bring us to, right? Is to look at our misplaced hopes and our disappointments and our pain, to honestly look at that and say, yes, if I'm looking in this narrative, I feel that same disappointment and pain. I have been Noah. I have been Ham. I have been these people. I, yep, I, my hopes are misplaced as well. What would it take for me to get covered well, the hope that they have and the hope of Christianity right, is not to make us heroes. Right? I think all of us, we, we have a tendency, again, this is that heroic longing within all of us, and we, we do this with religion. Right? We, we turn to religions, philosophies, self-help programs, lots of things to help ourselves become the hero. I messed up. I feel guilt and shame. I know I'm not that. Give me a program to become that. Give me something so I can be that. I want to be the good father that I've never been. What do I got to do? Show me in the text. Give me something so I can become that heroic father that I've longed for always. Or that good son, that good daughter. I, what do I got to do to become the hero? Give me your program. Give me your system. I will pray however often I need to pray. I will read my Bible. However, I mean, what, whatever I got to do to become that hero let me, give me something to, come, to become that hero. And Scripture doesn't give it to us. 
we're never going to be the hero in the, in the stories. We're never going to be the hero of our own story. Noah never becomes the hero. Right? Adam and Eve never become the heroes because they were never intended to be the hero. But rather, what God does for them and what he does for us, he takes away their guilt and their shame and he covers them. Right? There's a covering that happens. Remember in the garden when God lovingly covered them with animal skins. He covered their guilt and their shame. He covered Noah's guilt and shame. There's this hope of being covered. Not of, you know, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm sorry, God, right? Like, if you think about these characters, right, like, they don't ever really have that chance. Like, could you imagine feeling that weight of guilt? Like, to be Eve, it's like, I am, <laughs> I ruined it. Yeah, but there's nothing more to do, right? It, she, didn't, she didn't start doing penance or some sort of program to kind of earn it back or like, I'll pay you back, God, for everything that I did in the garden, right? Like, I'm, I'm so sorry. She just accepted the covering that God gave and trusted that God was going to bring that promised child through her, right? We want to do something. Out of our guilt and our shame, we want to do something. We want to cover it. Give me something to do so I can cover it. I can deal with it. Where God and the gospel offers us forgiveness, not something to do. Rather, what we have in the gospel is Jesus taking all that ridicule, ridicule and abuse that we fear right, on himself and giving us his record as that perfect son, covering us and taking away that guilt and that shame, being made new and being brought into this new family. Because if this is true, right, if, if the gospel, if Christianity is actually true, which is a, a pretty legitimate question we should always be thinking about, is this really even true, what I'm believing? If it is, if that's what Christianity has to offer me, forgiveness, if it has to offer me, yeah, really, there's, a, there's something out here, there's someone out there who will take away my guilt and my shame, lift that off of my shoulders, Right? reconcile me, give me a, a true righteousness that's not my own. If that's true, we now have the opportunity to live true and honest lives. We don't have to cover things up anymore. And this is what the text is calling us to do, right? This is what calling us. We don't have to cover ourselves. God has covered us. He has covered our sins. He has covered our failures. He's covered my sins, and he's covered the sins of my family. I don't have to act like nothing's wrong in my life. I can be honest, truthful, right? Which is, again, why we don't like these types of narratives, endings, because they seem to be real. Right? It's like a Hemingway novel. It's too real. I don't want a, a sad ending. Right? But that is, in fact, what we all experience and what this enables us, if the gospel is true, I, don't, I can be honest about my failures. I can be honest about the sin and the hurt and the pain that I experience and the brokenness. And I can recognize it. I can see it. I don't have to act like anything is wrong. I can take ownership of my own sin. I don't have to have this inflated view of self. 
which some of us do, of saying, that's my kid's problem, not my problem, right? That's not my problem, too. But we also don't have to be perfect, right? What hope there is that this, if we can let go of that hero narrative, I don't have to be the hero. (sighs) There's a lot of peace that comes from knowing that, that there is a hero who is perfect for us, who does the work for us on our behalf, and that we've been invited to the party, we've been brought into things, but it's not us, <laughs> which is hard. It, I, Paul David Tripp has that little statement. I don't know if you've heard it before. He talks about, he was like a kindergarten teacher. Maybe he was an elementary principal. I don't know, but he was at like a first grader's birthday party. Paul David, Paul David Tripp is his Christian counselor, if you don't know who he is. But he kind of gives this, he says this kid's like first grade birthday party, and there's a child crying, you know, in the corner. And, right, so you know, why are you crying? It's like, well, it's not my birthday. You know, and it's like, and he said, like, that is us. That is all of our lives is coming to the realization that it's not your birthday and it's never going to (laughs) be. It's Jesus is the hero. It's Jesus's party. He's the one. And because, again, it's drawing us with our hopes to not put our hopes in ourselves, not put our hopes in our families, not put our hopes in our kids, not put our hopes in programs and religion but to put our hope in God, right? Like, what is Noah supposed to do? What, is, what are they supposed to do at the end of these narratives? Hope that God is going to take care of them. Hope that God has covered them, forgiven them, and is still going to bring salvation to them. Because the hope that the gospel gives us, right, that if Christ has reconciled all things and is reconciling all things, I don't have to be perfect. His reconciliation is it's working. It's even for Ham and Canaan, right? Because this is not the end of their story, right? This is the land that they are going to go to. Abraham is to be a blessing to them. <laughs> like They are to be brought back into the family of God one day. Like There is hope, right? But not hope, misplaced hope that I'm the one who's going to save my kids. I'm the one who's going to save my grandkids, my cousins, my everything, or I'm going to save my parents, or I'm going to save myself for my own issues, but rather the text is continually pulling us and drawing us to trust and wait on God. He has reconciled us. He has forgiven us and dealt with our sins, has covered us, and is reconciling, actively reconciling and working out our sins on our behalf. Well, let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your, your love for us. Lord, that you did not leave us in that state of shame. Lord, that you have covered us, that you have covered us with yourself. Lord, you look on us and you see your son and daughter in whom you are well pleased that you find no fault in us. Lord, we confess to you how hard it is for us to accept your forgiveness and to accept your covering of our sin because we want to be the hero and we want to fix ourselves and cover ourselves. And so how often we replace it, we trade away your covering and throw back on our own shabby sewn together fig leaves, Lord, trying to cover our guilt and our shame, and it doesn't work. Thank you, Father, 
for your great love for us, for that once and for all forgiveness of sins that you have given. Lord, thank you for how you are at work reconciling us to you and to each other. Lord, help us to have hope, to have a bigger kingdom vision of you and how you are working, not just in our immediate lives, Lord, but in future generations as well. So Lord, that we can trust you, fear you, worship you, and know that the ending to the story is going to be a glorious one. Lord, strengthen us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how it speaks and how it convicts and how it points ultimately back to you. Lord, help us. Help us to use your word to redirect our hearts and our minds to the worship of you. In the name of